All right. Well, we are coming to Romans chapter 12, but before we get to chapter 12, I want you to go to Romans chapter 11 towards the end of the chapter. So please open up your Bible or your phone or your iPad or whatever it is you're using these days. Today we're talking about the outworking, the outworking of salvation. And in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Uh, It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, this is sort of a climax, you might say, in our study in Romans. We've looked at these amazing things, and I'll review them in just a moment. But here, Paul is just... just, um, exclaims the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord and who hath been his counselor? Obviously nobody because God is God. Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Okay. Now these verses beautifully summarize God's marvelous plan for man, which is what we have been studying. That's the theme of our study through Romans. And um, remember this as we go through. God is God and we are not God. All right. God is God and we are not God. And, you know, in these days of the uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus and all these other things where man is trying to come up with these ideas and people are jockeying for position and all these different things are going on. Friends, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, Jesus Christ is God. God is having his way. God is allowing. God is bringing. God is moving in the world in which we live. And the sooner we learn that God is God and we are not, the better off we are going to be. When every knee bows the knee to him. Because that is, in fact, the way it will be in eternity. He will rule and he will reign. Now, These verses summarize the marvelous plan that we have seen. And this really, verses 33 through 36, summarize the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, where have we been? Well, chapter one, we saw the history of man and the mess that man has made of the world because of his sin. Chapter two and part of chapter three, we saw that all the world stands guilty before God and man is helpless and hopelessly lost under condemnation. Chapters three through five, we saw God's provision through the payment the Lord Jesus Christ made and the offering of salvation that he makes to us, providing eternal life, a home in heaven as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter six and seven, we saw how salvation should affect our everyday lives because of the fact that we have been saved and the bondage of sin has been broken. And now we can live in victory. Chapter eight, we saw the importance of the Holy Spirit and the vastness and the completeness of our salvation and our eternal security in Christ. This is marvelous. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we saw the plan of God for the ages in and through the life of his chosen people, the nation of Israel, and that we as Gentiles have had the privilege to be made partakers of the gospel through 
the Jewish people and with the Jewish people. And so we all make up the body of Christ. Now this is amazing. And in light of the amazing way God has worked from creation up to this time, and of course into the future, we come to chapter 12. And for those of us who are believers, chapter 12 answers a question that was penned thousands of years ago in the book of Psalms. And I want you to see this with me. So hold your place here and go with me to Psalm 116. And we are going to be looking at verse 12. Psalm 116 in verse 12. And when I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I cannot help but think of Psalm 116 in verse 12. I was looking through one of my old Bibles uh, this week, uh, one that's wide margin. It has a lot of notes. And boy, those notes bring back memories, don't they? Those of you who write things in your margins. And one of the verses that I had in there was Psalm 116, verse 12. And look what it says. In light of all that God has done for us, those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, it says in Psalm 116, verse 12, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? That really is what Romans chapter 12 answers. What shall I render? What shall I give unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? Romans chapter 12 is the logical response to the Lord saving us and giving us all that he has. I want you to go back to Romans and let's look at that. Romans chapter 12 and verse one, it says this. I beseech you therefore, brethren. Now, let me say this. If you were to take the end of Romans chapter 8 and you were to link it to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it would make uh, total sense. Let me just read it to you. Um, It says in Romans 8, verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Do you see how that beautifully that fits together? Do you remember when we studied Romans 9 through 11, we talked about it being sort of parenthetical. It's a parenthesis in the flow of the book of Romans, talking about how the gospel went out to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and it's going to come, and then it's coming back to the Jews, and they're getting interested again because they've seen God working in the lives of Gentiles. And then we come here to Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or or the idea is in view of the mercy God had in saving you, in view of the mercy God had in saving you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, okay? Chapter 12 is the outworking of our salvation as believers. Those of us who have trusted Christ the Savior, we have eternal life. We know we can never lose it. We're secure forever. And then chapter 12 now is basically saying, now, you've been saved by grace. You're eternally secure now. Let's move on from here. And now that you've been made alive spiritually, let's do something with that. Let's move on. Let's make our lives count as believers. These two verses, verses one and two, are the door into the rest of the book of Romans. All right? Important to understand that. Romans one through Romans 11, 
very strong Bible doctrine and tremendous teaching. But when we come to chapter 12, it's the door into the practical aspect of the truths that we've already learned. It's how we take those, we walk through the door into everyday living. That's what Romans 12 through the rest of the book is dealing with. It is a call to what we call true discipleship. True discipleship. Now let me define some terms here. You hear uh, a, basically a disciple is a, is the basic word disciple means a learner, okay? Now the idea is that it isn't just head knowledge, it isn't just that we get information, we're learning with a mind to apply what we learn. That's the idea. And in that, we would be following the scriptures or following the Lord. Now, we live in a day today, and I want to address this, and I've done it before, but it needs to be done again. And I can promise you I'm going to do it again and probably again and again and again because a term has come up, and it's a good term in the proper context, but it's being misunderstood today. People aren't saying anymore, such as on Christian radio and, so, and, and in books, they're not saying believers anymore. Have you noticed that? They're not saying believers. What are they saying? Christ followers. Now, every Christian ought to be a Christ follower. But listen, what they're subtly saying many times, and if they're not saying this, they ought to change what they're saying. Because they're insinuating that if you're saved, you're a Christ follower. Well, the two should go together, but they aren't necessarily together. Here's what I'm saying, friend. To follow Christ is to be a disciple of Christ. But you don't go to heaven by being a disciple. You go to heaven by being a believer. Once you've trusted Christ as your savior, that's a believer, then you ought to decide to follow Christ with your life. But to say, to see a Christ follower as synonymous with a believer is to, in fact, put works into the gospel. It's basically saying if you're not following Christ, you don't have salvation. Now, maybe people don't mean that, but I guarantee you a lot of people do mean that. And that is adding works to the gospel. Now listen, you know, people can hear that and they'll say, well, you people don't believe that Christians ought to live right. Well, that is the absolutely ridiculous statement. If you follow our ministry at all or listen to past messages or even today's message, especially from today on through the end of the book of Romans, you're gonna see very clearly that we believe that once you're saved, you should serve the Lord. But that is not a requirement to getting to heaven. See, friend, if you're trusting in the way you live to get you to heaven, you're not going to heaven because you're not saved by works. You're saved by the grace of God. And it's a free gift. To be a disciple of Christ is not the same thing as being saved. Getting saved is simply a matter of trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. As I mentioned, it is a free gift gift. And by the way, all gifts are free. If they're not free, they're not a gift. It costs Jesus everything. What does it cost us? Nothing. Nothing. Because salvation is a gift. If it cost you something, it wouldn't be a gift. And the truth of it is, it wouldn't be salvation. Well, how do you know that? Well, what the Bible says, and we're going to look at it here in just a moment in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. But before we do, look with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, I want you to notice this. It's talking about what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. 
And now, now think through this, you know? We live in a day when we've got the access to the word of God, it's everywhere. And we see a verse here and a verse here and we, we look at it and we claim it and we do a quick search on our phone or our tablet or on our computer and we find verses, oh, I like that verse. You know, we'll bookmark it, we'll highlight it or whatever. Do we think deeply about it? God not only wants us to learn it, he wants us to meditate on the scripture. That's the idea of thinking deeply on it. Look at the language in Hebrews 9, verse 12. It says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, Jesus, by his own blood, he entered in once, once into the holy place. Now, why did he only have to enter once? Look at it. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, If he obtained eternal redemption, then he only needed to go in once. He only went in once because the effects are eternal redemption. The word redemption, it means to redeem, it means to purchase, to buy back, okay? Jesus bought us out of the slave market of sin by the payment he made on the cross. You see, friend, our sins have to be paid for. You can't go to heaven with your sins, And Jesus went to the cross to make the payment for our sins. And when he did, he provided, he, uh, you notice it's, he obtained eternal redemption for us. That means if you're saved, if you're redeemed, you're redeemed forever, forever. Now this is a wondrous, wondrous thing. Many of you have seen me do this before, but let me illustrate this. If this hand were to represent you and me and, and this wallet represent our sin. I know one of the people who watches our program, he, he wrote this last week and he says, hey, that, that wallet with the word sin on there, where'd you get that? Can I get one of those? Uh, no. Well, you, well, let me put it this way. You ought to just get one made. This was made by a leather crafter. I think he's either in, was in Colorado or New Mexico and he sent it to me as a gift and I don't even remember his name, but he wanted me to have it and I said, okay, we'll do this. Okay, so here we are. You and me, and this is our sin. God loves us, he hates our sin, but he loves us. To go to heaven, you have to have all your sins gone. They have to be forgiven. If we die with our sins, we will die and we will spend forever separated from God, suffering in a literal conscious hell. We'd be lost forever. The wages of sin being death, separation from God, all right? Heaven being a perfect place, No sin can dwell there. We're sinners, therefore we can't dwell there. We can't dwell there. Sin's gotta be paid. Death is the only payment. Now, most a lot of people think, okay, the way I'll pay for my sin is by being loyal to Jesus Christ, living for him. No, friend, that's something for saved people. That doesn't get you to heaven. The Bible puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. See, good works don't take away sin. They may cover up the sin, but they don't take it away. Jesus entered the human race, this hand representing him, God in the flesh, and when he went to the cross, he died in our place. He made the payment for our sin, having obtained eternal redemption for us, and he rose from the grave. And when you put your faith in him, 
He saved you by his grace, his undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor. It's not something you deserve. See, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You mean to say that if I just trust in Jesus Christ the Savior, I'll go to heaven? Yes, that's what the Bible says. Jesus said, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, he was either telling the truth or he wasn't. And of course, he's God who can't lie. Therefore, he was telling us the truth. God provides for us eternal life, and it's a gift. All you need to do is trust in Christ. And when you do, the payment he made is good on your behalf. He gives you eternal life. All your sins are forgiven. He gives you his righteousness, and you're going to heaven when you die. What about the way I live? That's, that has no bearing on whether you'll go to heaven or not. Now, once you've trusted Christ as Savior, does God have things that he wants us to do? Does God have a way he wants us to live? Yes, he does, very clearly. You know, we're in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 10 with me. It says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto, unto, for the purpose of good works, which God hath before ordained that we, look at the next word, should walk in them. You notice it doesn't say we must walk in them because that would be contradicting verses eight and nine where it says it's not of works. If you have to do good works, then it is of works. No, it's not of works. Where works come in is that it is us responding to God being so generous to us and saving us that we turn around in response to him with grateful hearts and now we live for him. Not because we have to, but because we're responding to how much he loves us and what he's done for us. That is the way this fits together. We're not saved by works. You notice, and it says that we should walk in them. If we have to, that would be works for salvation. It doesn't say that we will walk in them. Now that would be false because none of us always do what God wants us to do. So many people, they just can't accept salvation is a free gift by the grace of God. And yet that is what the Bible teaches us. Now I know people, wow, I can't accept that because if you're saved, you're going to serve the Lord. No, it says should, friend. It doesn't say will, it says should. And should we? We should. Can we get that? See, I've been a pastor for many decades and I believe with all my heart that Christians ought to live for Christ. But if you're trusting in the way you live to get you to heaven, you're not saved. You're only saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. Now, something occurred to me this week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 that I'd never really seen before, never put together. That's why we talk about the Bible being a living book. In Ephesians, these three verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, summarize the entire book of Romans when you get down to it. What do I mean by that? Well, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we see the truths of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, all right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that's exactly what Romans 1 through 11 is teaching, what you see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then when you get to Ephesians 2, 10, we see Romans chapter 12 through 16. These parallels are unmistakable, they're there. And they're there for a reason, because that is true Bible doctrine. That's how the scriptures fit together. 
Now, getting back to our text, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, what we see in verses one and two, we see three calls to action. And they're very important for us to realize. Number one is this, we are to present our lives to the Lord. You see that in verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We're to present our lives to the Lord. Now let's break this down. You notice he says first, I beseech you therefore, brethren. This is written to believers. This is not written to people saying, this is how you get to heaven. He's writing to brethren. He's writing to Christian brothers and sisters, all right? And notice he's exhorting them. It is not a requirement for salvation, but what we should do in light of the wonderful mercy that God has bestowed upon us in saving us. Some people want to argue the point. They'll say, well, okay, wait, are you saved by grace or are you saved by mercy? Yes, okay, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. You might say, how does that work? Mercy is us not getting what we deserve, which is hell. God was merciful to us in saving us. Grace is getting something that we absolutely don't deserve that is wonderful, which is eternal life, okay? This is rich and wonderful truth for the believer. So I am saved by mercy and I am saved by grace. And you know what? Grace and mercy, they're sweet cousins and they're always in harmony. They're always in harmony. I beseech you therefore, brethren, okay? I exhort you. Some would say, I beg you, brethren. What? That you would, secondly, present your bodies. Now, this is an important word for us to comprehend. Okay. It's very, you can picture it. The word present means to offer up or to yield. It is a decision to be made as believers. It's written to believers now. Understand that this is not how to be saved. This is how to live once you're saved. Okay. It's a decision to be made. It is a point in time decision. We are to yield ourselves up to the Lord and let him have his way in our lives. It is a choice that we make as Christians to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. But it is a choice to be made. It's not automatic, but yet it is the right thing to do. I want you to see something very interesting about this word present. I want you to hold your place here and look with me over to Luke chapter two, the gospel of Luke chapter two. The exact same word is used and it's translated the same way. It is a picture of something that I know will ring true to you. Luke chapter two. And in Luke chapter two, it's talking about Jesus when he was a baby And it says in Luke 2, 21, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's exactly the same idea. They brought him to Jerusalem. And what did they do? When they brought him to Jerusalem, this baby Jesus, they brought him to present him to the Lord. That is exactly what we need to do 
with our lives and our bodies once we are believers in Christ. We should come to the Lord in response to his saving us by his grace and say, Lord, I am presenting myself to you to be used for your glory, for your purposes. And you notice here, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, look at the next phrase, a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. This is in contrast to Old Testament dead sacrifices, okay? This means that there is something for us to do. God doesn't say, give me your body once you're dead. He says, give me your body while you're alive. Why? Because we are his hands and feet as Christians. We are to be used for the glory of God. God wants to use our lives to bring others to him and to be salt and light. While we are to offer ourselves up in a moment of time, we are then to live that out. In other words, it is a decision we make to present our bodies a living sacrifice. There's a decision in that to do, but then there's also a commitment of the life. Now, we can't perfectly fulfill that, but it is still a commitment that God wants us to make. So once I'm saved and I understand what God has done for me and I'm eternally secure no matter what, I'm saved no matter what, okay? Whether I'm faithful or not, I'm saved by grace. I understand that. I have eternal security. I should be so moved by what God has done for me that I say to the Lord, Lord, take me. Lord, take my life. I am presenting my body to you to be used for your glory. That is Romans 12, 1. That is the thrust of this. You notice also we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, the next word, holy. That means set apart to God. It is recognizing that the Lord owns us and he has saved us to live a new life. And so we say, Lord, I am giving myself completely to you. That new life is to be a pure life because that's what holiness leads us to. That is what is acceptable to God. In Romans chapter 6 and verses 11 through 13, it says, Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Living sacrifice, alive unto God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body or rule in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your instruments, your body parts, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That is what we're supposed to do once we're saved. And if you were to go back into the book of Romans, you saw chapters one through chapter five very clearly talking about how lost and guilty and condemned we were, and yet God provided a way of escape through the Lord Jesus Christ and his payment for our sin. And when you trust in him, you're given eternal life, you're born again, and you have new life, you have a resurrection life. And that life now is to be lived for the glory of God. This is a wonderful truth. And by the way, notice here in Romans 12, verse 1, again, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your, look at the next phrase, it is our reasonable service. 
Now, that's, that's interesting. That, that word reasonable is a Greek word. You'll, it'll sound familiar to you. It's a Greek word, logikos. Logikos. What does that sound like? It sounds like our English word logical. And you know what? It's exactly what it means. It's exactly what it means. It is the thing to do in light of what God has done for us. It is reasonable. It is only logical. See, friend, when you, and we'll never fully do this, but when you start appreciating and wrapping your mind around how awesome this eternal life is, how awesome it is to be a child of God, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. When you start realizing that, it is only logical for us to have grateful hearts to the Lord to where we would say, Lord, take my life and let it be. Take my life. I surrender my life, not because I have to. Lord, I surrender it because I want to, because I'm grateful for what you've done for me. It is a reasonable, it is a logical service. Paul talked a lot about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 14, it says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Turn there with me, would you? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to see this. You know what? I'm sure Paul did not understand the depth of his salvation as soon as he got saved, but he was on his way. He was on his way because as soon as he got saved, he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? I mean, he was amazed that he was saved. God could save. He said, look, I was the chiefest of sinners. He was responsible for the murder of Christians. And yet God saved him by his grace. And the Bible says Paul started preaching the faith which he once destroyed. Oh, he got it. He understood it. He was grasping it as time went on, as his life went on, just like we do. But very early on, he got it. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us, okay? It compels us, it infects us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's only logical for the believer to live for Christ. It's not automatic, but it's a logical decision to make. And by the way, friend, if it was automatic, there'd be no reason for Paul to be exhorting and begging believers to surrender their lives and present their lives to the Lord to be used for his glory. If it was automatic, it would just happen. No reason to say it. But it is a wonderful thing to do once we're saved. Let's move on. Romans 12, back to Romans Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, and it says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are not to be conformed to the world system. The world system that is under the control of Satan, the world system that is so evil and wicked and perverse, we as believers are not to be under control of that, and we are not to conform to that, be fashioned like that. That's not just talking about clothing. It's more than that. To let that dictate the way we live our lives. I can remember years ago when our youngest daughter, Laura, was um, quite a bit younger than she is now. And I don't know if she was 
maybe nine or 10 years old or if she was in her early teens. But I can, we were talking about Romans 12, one and two. And uh, I actually had this written in one of my Bibles. And uh, I remember I was asking her about it. And she said, I said, well, what do you think that means? And here's what she said. She says, do not do the bad things the world wants you to do. Do not do the bad things the world wants you to do. I thought, whoa, that's some pretty deep theological truth there. Don't do the bad things the world wants you to do. That's it, friend. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't do the bad things the world wants you to do. The temptations are there, okay, to compromise, to sin, to be wicked, just like the world, the perversion of the world. And how do we, how do, we do that? We follow them. We follow the world instead of following Jesus. We give our hearts to the world instead of living for Christ. Now this word conformed, again, to be fashion-like. We are not to be like the world. And this is a huge problem today. Now let me say this, and I know some people won't like what I have to say, but uh, uh, you ought to be happy for what I don't. Um, Many churches today are trying to be as much like the world as they possibly can be. Where did we get the idea? Now, here we go, but I don't care. Where did we get the idea that church is to be so loud with rock music that you have to go around like some churches do before the service begins and offer people earplugs because the music is so loud? Where did we get that idea? It's from secular rock concerts. Where did we get the idea of fog machines and strobe lights in church? It's from secular rock concerts, okay? These concerts created by lost, immoral people. Why are we following those patterns instead of following the beauty and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do we want to be like the world? Why is it that, and this was years ago, I don't even know how it is now, why is it that years ago you could walk into a Christian bookstore, and I can remember being in one once, and I was there, and there was regular music, and then there was a contemporary Christian music, and by the way, not all contemporary Christian music is bad, and when I say contemporary Christian music, I mean Christian music that is recently written and created, Not all of it is bad, okay? But why is it that you could go into those stores and a person working there would say, well, okay, um, you know, uh, what, what secular artists are you used to listening to? Well, I listen to Madonna. Okay, well, come over here. This Christian artist sounds a lot like her. Well, I'm, I'm used to listening to this one or that one. Okay, well, come over here. This'll, they sound like this. Wait a minute. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world. Do you understand what I'm saying, friend? We wonder why the Christian life of, of so many is so messed up today, why so many churches are ineffective. You might say, well, wait a minute. I know a church down the road. They've got, you know, 10,000, 12,000 or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But let me ask you this. Are they truly preaching the word of God? Are they calling people to live a godly, holy life? Or do they have people in that church that they know of that are living in sin, that are living in adultery, that are 
into this and into that and all these other things. And yet the pastor is too afraid to take a stand against anything because they're going to lose people by that. Listen, you better be careful. You better be careful. Oh, you sound like one of those old crusty fundamentalists. Guilty. Guilty. Okay? Listen, friend, we need to be preaching the whole counsel of God. We not only should be talking about the grace of God and the mercy of God, but we also ought to be talking about the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. That's all in the word of God. And I know people don't like that, but this is the way it is, and this is the way it needs to be, okay? People say, well, well, what we're trying to do, you don't understand. You know, you're a, you're a dinosaur, and, and your way's not going to work. But what we're trying to do is we're... T- Boy, I'll tell you what. Don't say this around me. We're trying to make Jesus relevant for today. Let me tell you something, friend. There is nothing more relevant than that which is eternal. Okay? The word of God is eternal. And I don't need to market Jesus in a slick way to make him acceptable. That's not my job. My job is to preach the word as it is. And as we preach the word as it is, it does a miraculous job in the lives of people. Why? Because the preacher gets out of the way. He surrenders being clever. And instead, he just preaches the word as it is and lets the chips fall where they may. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if you, pastor, friend, listen, if you don't end up with a mega church, it's okay. Were you faithful? Were you faithful to the Lord? That's the issue. Not how many people do you have coming out. Now, we're all for church growth, okay? But church growth is not only numerical, but it's also internal. Churches are supposed to be growing not only, yes, we ought to be growing in numbers, but we also ought to be growing in maturity as people. And it's both of those things. And it's God who gives the increase. Do we do all we can do? Yes, without compromising though. You can't compromise the scriptures. You can't say, well, this technique is more important than the word. It's the word of God that's important. That's the most important thing. We are not to be conformed to the world system. But many churches are trying to be as much like the world as possible. They have the same immoral styles, the same music. They have the same interests, okay? They get more excited about sporting events than they do about local church coming together. This is a mistake. I'm not saying all churches are that way. I'm just calling out the ones that are. It's not right. It's not pleasing to God. 1 John 2.15 says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of God cannot be there at the same time we are in love with the world. You can't split that. You can't split that. See, we think if we put a cross emblem on something that it makes it Christian. It doesn't. It's an issue of the core of something. There is little sense of God's holiness today and awesomeness and his purity, purity. Again, the music is wanting, friend, a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it is terrible. You know, I, years ago, I noticed this. Some uh, 
public speakers and apologists even, they go on and they talk about, oh, we're losing people. We're losing this generation or these kids and all that. So what they do is they have these events. And at these events, you know, they're talking about the kids are immoral now. The Christian youth, they're, they're into the same things that the worldly kids are into and immorality and sex out of marriage and fornication and this thing and that thing. And then what they do is they have these events, these big gatherings, and the music they have is completely sensual. And you wonder why the kids aren't changing and they live in defeat. Well, what do you want us to do? Just, just do hymns? Well, I'll tell you what, hymns are a good place to start. But no, we don't just do hymns in our church. We do some contemporary music, some newer music. But friend, here's the thing. Number one, is it conservative? And number two, is it biblical? Is the music conservative and God-honoring? And secondly, are the lyrics accurate to Scripture? Both of those things, both of those things would line up with the Word of God better than what you're hearing today. Well, music is amoral. Music is not amoral, okay? Years ago, we had a, uh, a music store here in St. Cloud, Schmidt Music, and they had a big banner on their wall. I'll never forget it. This is a secular music store. These are not necessarily Christians. And, and when I say that, I'm not saying they weren't saved people who worked there. I'm just saying I don't know. But this was what was on the wall of Schmidt Music. Listen to this. Music makes an important impact on how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. Okay? Music. We're not talking about the lyrics. We're talking about the music. Music makes an important impact on how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. Very important. Okay, let's move on to the third point, and it is this. You notice in Romans 12, 2, and we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is done through the learning and then the living out of the word of God. Friend, if you're not going to a church that preaches and teaches the word of God as it is, that church is not fulfilling its mission. The focus of local church is to be Jesus Christ and the word of God. Learning it, getting equipped, falling in love with him, and then going out and reaching others with that truth evangelism and discipleship. This is why local church should have the Lord and his word as the focus. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. By the way, can you think of anything else that tops that? No. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The word of God transforms us by renewing our minds. It changes the way we think. We start thinking as God does. Only the Bible can do that. Human pressure can't do that. Only the Bible can do that because it's something that takes place on the inside and then it's supposed to work itself out. Starts on the inside. And what will it do? Verse 17, it will prove out that God, uh, God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. I'm sorry, going back to uh, Romans 12, 2. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yielding yourself to the Lord, offering yourself up to him, presenting yourself as a Christian to the Lord, saying, Lord, take my life and let it be. Lord, I want you to use my life. I surrender it. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Not because I have to, but because I want to. 
And what you are going to do, friend, as you live your life as a Christian, what you are going to do is you are going to find out that, yes, indeed, God's will is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. It is perfect. Why? God promises good things to those who will walk with him. You see, if you live a life of faithfulness, you will live a life that is a life of dedication to the Lord. And that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 has to do with, okay? The living out of the word of God. Listen to this. We, this again, great hymn of the faith. Listen to the, these benefits to being a believer. Pardon for sin. That right there is enough. Pardon for sin in a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. God going with us at all times. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. And then the chorus, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Listen. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Okay? God wants us to be faithful because he has been faithful to us. He's not going to make you, friend, but that is what he wants, and that is the best life. You see, faithfulness is what Christian dedication is all about. This is ultimately the standard we will be judged by. This is an issue that focuses on our whole life. Then let me close with this. If you happen to be watching and you've never even trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't know God as Father. You don't know that relationship. God wants you to be His child. And all you need to do is put your faith in Him. Trust in Jesus Christ that He died for your sins and paid for them all on the cross, and that he rose from the grave. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that moment you will be saved from hell to heaven. You can have it today. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.